going. Happy Sunday. God, thank you for today. Thank you for all the blessings in our lives, especially this blessing of a life. Give us the peace and the strength and the wisdom to do your will with it. You are our God, our provider, and our protector, our Father. You are our children. May worship you now. Amen. Thirsty animal, my heart is. 
God, you do reign, and we thank you that you reign, and we thank you that you give us this opportunity, Lord. This Sunday, this beautiful day that you've given us to come in here and to sit and with our fellow believers and worship you in song and gifts. We just ask that you bless the congregation and Pastor Eric and Josh and the worship team as we continue on. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And kids, you can go off and learn about Jesus in Kids Church right now. They're waiting for you down the hall, so go ahead and do that, and we're going to continue with worshiping.
church. How is everybody today? What a beautiful town God has given us, huh? I should have numbered my notes. This is really, really bad. It's okay. I don't really use them anyways. Um, man, glad you guys are all here today. You know what today is? It's our senior recognition day for high school. We're super excited about all of our high school students graduating and all of our college. Just give them a hand. Yes. Thank you for sticking in there and making it to the end. But let me warn you, they don't give you your diploma inside that book. You actually have to make it through the ceremony without being crazy. Then they'll give it to you. So you're not out of the water yet, but you're close. So, uh, if you're visiting with us, welcome. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. We are in the middle of a series, uh, as you might have seen from that video, called We the Church. Um, We've been going over some of the identities in the New Testament that's been laid out for us to live as Christians, as God's people. And when I was thinking about it this week, about what I wanted, what I felt like God wanted to just bring us to next as an identity... I had in my mind our seniors who are graduating. These, these teens are super, super special to us. The leadership, um, to the growth and, and the betterment of our church as a people. Um, and really I had this thought in my mind that said, man, like if I had one thing to preach, if I had one more thing to say to our students, what would it be? And you know, I had a talk with Caleb Richardson, who is the pastor of Radiant, during Easter, and we both sort of just had this agreement that, you know, every Sunday should be an Easter Sunday. What I mean by that is every Sunday, 
There's some people that I think act like some Sundays are just filler. You know, it's just good enough for the Sunday. But man, it's just like we are proclaiming the truth of the word, you know, and we should come to it with this like enthusiasm and this reverence and this fear. So this week I've just been just pouring into, man, what does it mean to be the children of God? What does it mean? I mean, we say, okay, we're the children of God, but what does that mean when we look at it? What does it mean for God being glorified and for us walking in our faith? Because I think sometimes we get stuck into this idea that, okay, we're the children, God's the Father, let's move on. But there's so much in this. Um, And it's been kind of just eye-opening to me to realize how much the identities sort of weave together. If you've been here for this whole series, we could have easily done the racial recognition reconciliation sermon I did for the chosen race today because the fact is is that to be the children of God it means that we vertically have been saved and made right with the father but also horizontally we've been saved as uh, as brothers and sisters in Christ does that make sense so we've been knit together as a fellowship not only that we're children of God but we're adopted into one big happy Greek wedding family right Like, this is one family. You don't choose your siblings. God chooses them. And that they're your siblings, we all have the same bloodline running through us, and that is powerful. Um, And we're united in a way that being outside of Christ, the world isn't. In the Bible, it says that the God is the creator of all the earth. Obviously, He's created, He's formed every single person from the dust. But that identity as children is held to those who come to Christ and find redemption. God is the father of those who, who claim the blood. So there's something special in it. And today I want to just look at it and focus on that. And I'm going to be doing it in just a, a little bit different way than I thought I would be at the beginning of this week. But I think it's what God wants to say to us today. So with that being said, let's invite the ushers forward. And I'm just going to pray. God, I thank you for the work that you're doing within this church, that you're doing within this people God, I thank you just so much for just meeting us and giving us your wisdom. And God, I thank you that this has nothing to do with a man on a stage, but this has everything to do with the revelation of your word and your spirit being heard. So get me out of the equation, Lord. I just pray that you would speak to the hearts of the people here. God, that you'd be glorified as head of this church. And that, uh, Lord, that you, you would just open our eyes and our hearts and our spirits to a new reality in which it means to be the children of God. Lord, I thank you for everybody that gives into this body, whether it be time or money or sweat or tears or whatever. God, and I thank you so much for the relationships you've built up to, uh, in this f- fellowship. And as people give their tithe and offering today, Lord, I pray that we'd be good stewards of it, that uh, we would use it for your glory, for the betterment of your kingdom, God, and that uh, we would just... Uh, Yeah, Lord, that you would be the focus of all that is given. In Jesus' name, amen. If you are visiting with us, just pass on the offering. It's just a sign of our worship. So, um, all right, if you've got your Bible with you, turn it open to Matthew 18. That's where we're going to be for a little bit. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. So if you flip your Bible in half and go a little bit to the right, you're, you're... you're, you're, you're good. But in Matthew 18, Jesus is having a discussion with his disciples. And before we even get into the text, let me tell you what's happening here. See, before this encounter, what was happening is that Jesus 
was going around and making these bold claims amongst his disciples, these 12 men that he uh, called in to follow him. And to this point, there have been some situations where Jesus had chosen a couple of them to follow him and said, okay, you guys stay here. Or specifically, Peter, who he said, and we talked about this the week that I preached on the living stones, is Peter on this rock, I'm going to build my church. Now, if you're one of the other 11 guys in that group, I'm sure you're going to be feeling like Peter just trumped us, dude. <laughs> like He just said he's going to be the rock in which he builds his church. So there's this feeling and this, there's this struggle within them, and we see it constantly. Like at one point, one of the disciples' mothers goes to Jesus and says, Hey, when you get to heaven, will you sit my son on your left and my other son on your right? It's just like, okay, this isn't about your status. This isn't about making you big. This is about God being big. And so in Matthew 18, this is exactly what they're doing. But I love the way the disciples talk because they didn't want to just come out and say, yo, Jesus, who's the most important person, right? Is it me? Is it Peter? Is it John? We all knew Judas is going to fall. Uh, they didn't know that yet. But um, they don't say that because it's Jesus and that's not how you talk to Jesus. So they say, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That sounds pretty scholarly, doesn't it? And calling to him a child, Jesus puts him in the midst of them and says, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like, a, like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like a child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so what we need to understand is that the people that he's talking to right now are his disciples. There is probably some other people around in the midst of uh, them but who he's talking to are his disciples. So this isn't like, hey, non-Christians, if you want to come to me, you need to be like a little child. No, he's talking to those who are saved. And he says, you guys don't get it. Like in order to walk with me, to his 12 closest people, he's saying, in order to be in this kingdom, you have to be like a child. Peter, John, James, like you... You guys, you need to grasp this because there's no hierarchy in the kingdom of God. God is the head and you are all under that. Like if you're going to try to trump card and say that you can be up there with Jesus and start ruling things, like good luck on that. But the fact is, is that God is God and you are not. So there is this huge gap between the reality of who God is and the reality of who we are. And Jesus is highlighting that right here. He says, unless you turn and become like a child. So I would say to the saved today, the people that claim Christ, unless you turn and become like a child, you don't understand what it means to be in the kingdom of God. That's a heavy, that's a, that's a hard, true, like black and white word. He says, whoever humbles himself like a child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So let's, let's be real, okay? Let's just have a conversation really quick. All of us know that children are not humble in one sense. Right? Bonnie knows. Good thing Harrison's graduating this year. All right. Now, um, in one sense, we all know children are humble. They're often selfish and demanding and think the whole entire world revolves around them, right? Until they're about 17 and they get their first speeding ticket. And they're like, oh, I'm not invincible. Right? <laughs> no, but there is this reality that children are pretty self-centered. But that's not what we're talking about. That's not the childlikeness that Jesus is calling us to. Because in another sense, they are completely humble. And this is what I mean by that. 
They are helpless and very dependent on parents for what they need to live. And they don't even try to deny or escape this dependence or this reality. You aren't going to see a two-year-old pack up his bags and be like, See ya. It's been fun. Right? That's not going to happen. Why? Because that two-year-old is completely dependent upon his parents. And it's not like he feels any ego trip in this. He knows this reality. There's a humility that comes in being a child that makes you realize you depend on your parents. Correct? So that's what we're talking about here. That Jesus is saying, this isn't about your status. This isn't about how great you are. And in fact, to be in my kingdom, you need to remember one thing. That you need to depend on me for everything. And it's only when you lower yourself and then I'm lifted up in you that you will be anything in this kingdom. Because the world needs me. They don't need Eric. Right? They need Jesus. The world needs Christ. So when I lower myself and then the world sees Jesus' strength through me, God is glorified. We're called to live childlike. So in a way, like we talked about the chosen race, where we're called to be a people of diversity, a people from all nations and all peoples together, we're called to be that chosen race. Also, we're called to be an assembly of the childlike. We're called to be those who live in this humble state of dependence and relying on our Father. And it's not something that should amaze us. You never go up to a one-year-old and be like, Man, I'm so amazed of the faith you have to nurse from your mother. I mean, you're blowing my mind right now that you're nursing. Right? Why? Because it's not amazing that the baby understands it needs to feed from its mom. And it should not amaze us as Christians, if God is truly God, that we need to depend on Him. Because we were never meant to live outside that relationship. The Garden of Eden wasn't like this intro round where Jesus is like, alright, for the next 20 years, it's me and you. And then you guys are going to go this way and I'll go up to heaven. And then we'll be separated. The whole entire design was that we would live in the presence of each other. That I would live in the presence of God. That He would live close to me and that I would be feeding off of everything that he was and then sin came and it broke it and it disconnected men from the presence that they were supposed to be living in so what Jesus is doing here is he's saying you're missing it if you think this is about you getting big because to be in my kingdom you have to lower yourself so that I can actually be who I am you're nothing without me there's a reality in that Now, there's another part that Jesus talks about in Mark 10 that I want to just bring up really quick. And this is another picture. In this picture, in this time, there was parents that were bringing their kids to Jesus. And the disciples were turning them away and saying, He doesn't have time for your kids. Go away. Bad move. Because Jesus says this, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying hands on them. Now this is a different picture because this isn't just like living in the kingdom to live like a child, the humility of a child. This is receiving the kingdom. Different picture here. So what is he saying? The reality is, is the kingdom of God is a gift and He wills to give it to those who have no claim on it. 
We do not deserve the kingdom. There is no piety that I can scrape up within myself to come to Christ and be like, am I good enough? That's not how it works. And he's making this picture in an incredibly clear way because he says, the children coming into my arms, did that one-year-old do anything to be received by Christ? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. It's a free gift. Salvation is a free gift. It has nothing to do with your trying or anything that you can muster up for God to choose you. Which brings a stark reality of this. We are utterly helpless in our relationship to the kingdom. And I mean this. There is nothing you can do to add to what Christ accomplishes in drawing you into his kingdom nothing you are helpless to it but here's the beautiful thing god extends it as a gift i mean that should blow our minds so what is happening here is that jesus is telling us and he's reminding us that the kingdom is that which god gives and that which man receives and the way in which we should always operate when we come into the reality of the cross is that i don't deserve this and yet god extends it so it should well up us in this joy, this childlike joy that goes, this is incredible. It's like when you buy ice cream and you bring it home for your five-year-old and they're like, this is the best thing in the world. That's the kingdom of God. And that's the response that we should constantly be in. It's not that we come to Christ and we get saved and we walk away and we're like, yeah, I was saved once. This is like, no, no, no. You were saved from death. And you are continually being sanctified through grace. And that should be our reality. That every day I wake up with a fresh realization that God's mercies are new every day. So my praises should be new every day. Just as a child. So let's flip the script for a second. Because in the New Testament, not only does Jesus say to be childlike, but Paul counters it with something that I want us to grasp. As a church. Because in 1 Corinthians 13, 11, Paul says something that might seem to contradict to what Jesus says in Matthew, but it doesn't at all. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. And in 1 Corinthians 14, 20, he says, brothers, don't be childish in your thinking. But be infants in regards to evil and adults in your thinking. And when he was talking to Timothy, the man that he loved more than anybody, this is the last book he's writing him to before Paul dies. Second Timothy was the last book in the Bible that Paul writes. And he says in Second Timothy 2.7, Think over what I say, Timothy. Use your mind. Think. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. In everything. A mature person should not think like a one-year-old. Does that make sense? We're not called to live childishly. God has called us to live childlike. In 2 Thessalonians 5.21, Paul says, Test everything. Hold fast to what is good. And in Je- Jesus says in John 7, Do not judge by appearance, but judge with right judgment. Grow up. It is important we grow up in our thinking that we become mature. Why? Well, first off, because it's the very command that God has given us. 
He says in Mark 12, Jesus says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Think with all your mind, with all your strength. And this is, the, this is the incredible picture that we have here. Because when you grow in the wisdom of God, it produces the exact opposite effect of the world's wisdom. Now let me tell you what I mean. This is how the world works. You grow from a child, you go through school, you get a job, you graduate high school, halabibala. You go to college, you finally move out of your parents' house when you're 25. Hopefully not. Bonnie, huh? (laughs) And through all of this, you're gaining wisdom and skills and an understanding to do what? To become independent, to become self-reliant, to go out into the world and own your own home and to do these things. And I mean, this is a good thing. In the Word, it says that a husband should take his wife and leave the parents' home, right? Right? But this is the world's mold for growth. It, it just, it's how we do it. It's just like, man, okay, you got to get your education, then you got to go to college, then you got to get a job. And everything that we're doing is gaining this wisdom and this understanding that would draw us into independence. That's the world's growth system for wisdom. That's why we grow into wisdom. Now, let's flip this because the kingdom of God is completely countercultural, 100%, and I'll tell you why. Because when we come into the kingdom of God, we start out the same way in a lot of ways. Initially, we come to Christ. We are in every sense of the way an infant. I don't know what propitiation means the first time I say the Lord's Prayer, right? I don't know these things. I couldn't tell you all the ins and outs of the Trinity or sanctification or justification or all the occasions in the Bible. But... We begin to grow in the wisdom of God. It says in 2 Corinthians that when we come to Christ, we're made a new creation. And that creation isn't made to stay in Neverland and just be a child. It's made to grow up into the wisdom of God. And when we grow into the wisdom and the reality and the truth of God's Word and the testimony in our lives, and what we see in other believers around us as living stones, when we're knit together, what happens? It only magnifies our need for God, and it draws us to a closer dependence on Him. The world's wisdom draws us to a place of independence and self-reliance. The wisdom of the kingdom draws us to realize we need God. And it draws us to a dependence on Him. Like a tight, close-knit dependence. Like in Psalms 91 when it says, We will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. And this is how Christ... Is calling us to be Christ or childlike, and Paul calling us away from being childish works together seamlessly. It's like an awesome pie. I'll tell you why. Because right thinking, growing up in spiritual maturity, is for the sake of living childlike. We need to grow up in our thinking so that we can grow down in our humility. The reason God has given us brains is to understand the Bible and the work of God clearly enough to realize that the only thing we can approach the Father as, as a dependent child. 
See, the more that I know about God, the more it seems ridiculous that I don't trust Him. It's just like a baby who is nursing. You wouldn't say to that baby, man, that's incredible faith. Right? It's ridiculous. But the more I learn that God truly did breathe creation out of nothing, and He holds the universe in the palm of His hands, and everything is held together from Him. How in the world am I going to depend on myself and not on Him? It's not faith. It's ridiculous if I don't. Because the reality of who He is, His righteousness, His faithfulness is what draws us into live childlike. It's the response. It's not something we need to muster up. So that's why Paul is saying to us, grow up. You've been on milk for too long. You were never meant to just get into Christianity and then just get your way through it. Just like plow your way. I am so sick of Facebook threads. People writing, you know, they want to make a point where it's just like this point and then people just talking out of ignorance. Well, I just don't think that God is. Fill in the blank. It's like, where are you getting that from? Is that from the Word? Is that from the reality of who Christ declares God to be in a spirit revealing truth to you? Or is that just out of an ignorant child who doesn't want to grow up and learn who the Father truly is? Because if that is what we're stuck with in Christianity, the world will never see redemption clear. We need as a church to grow up in the knowledge and the wisdom of God so that we can live in such a way where when the world sees us, they say, why don't you rely on yourself? When we go, that's stupid. Why would I? I have the Father who's the King of eternity taking care of me. What am I going to add to that? Let me tell you something. This is just, I just... Grits, it just grits me to pieces when I hear this. I don't know if grits me is a word, but it doesn't matter. Faith is not blind, church. Faith is not blind. I don't know how many people are just like, well, you know, you just believe that. There's, I mean, you just believe what you believe. It's just a fairy tale. It's like, no, 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 no. My God did not overcome the grave and defeat death and give me the power of the resurrected Christ who lives in me in the spirit. So that I could live blindly and hit walls as I go through life. That's not faith. It says in Hebrews 11 that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things unseen. I love what it says in the HCSB. It says, faith is the reality of what is hoped for and the proof of what is not seen. We are called to grow up into the maturity, the wisdom of God because it builds our faith in such a way where faith no longer is the issue because of the reality of God's faithfulness. It's not amazing for me to trust in a God who is truly faithful if I know that He is faithful. Does that make sense? But how much of us have faith in our faith? We go like, man, I just want, I'm just going to step on a limb. I say this all the time. I step on a limb so my faith will grow. And it's just like, man, my faith produced more faith, which did all the stuff. And I think in one way that's good, but in another way it's just completely that's not what faith is about. And I think one of the clearest ways to see that, one of the, one of the clearest ways is the Word of God. Because in the Word of God we learn the truth of who God is. And so when it says grow up in your maturity, it means open up the book and realize who I am. It's my revelation. And there's a clear picture in Hebrews 11 that I love. 
this chapter is usually termed the hall of faith because it's talking about all the people, all the way back to Abraham and the great stuff they did in faith in relationship to God. That, that we would look back into the lives of our brothers and sisters over time, that living stone, that wall that we're built into. We would see the testimony of their life and it would build up in us faith. But I think that we've come to this chapter wrong in a lot of ways. Because the, the, the writer of Hebrews highlights great moments in their lives when they had faith in God and it's quite humbling. It's like, man, I don't know. I don't know if I could build a boat for a hundred years. Like, that sounds kind of cuckoo, you know? I don't know if I could call down fire from heaven. But I want to show you something that I just, we got to grasp this, church. This is just some of the things that are listed in Hebrews 11. It's really long, so let me just bring this up to you just for a second. By faith, Noah spent a hundred years building the world's largest boat in the middle of the desert because he believed God would send a flood. By faith, Moses went before the most powerful king in the entire world on numerous occasions and commanded him to let his people go. He then led over two million stubborn people through the wilderness for 40 years to inherit the promised land that he never got to be in. By faith, Gideon pursued an extremely foolish military endeavor by arming 300 men with only trumpets and empty jars with torches against the Midianites and the Amalekites who were so numerous, it says, in, it says in the Bible that they were as numerous as the sand of the seashore. By faith, as a young shepherd boy, David stood against Goliath, a man who was greatly feared by the rest of Israel, a giant. He was the only person in all of the nation. By faith, the prophets spoke boldly to a stubborn and unrepentant people. They were persecuted a lot for that. And these are some of the extraordinary things that God did through His family. And the writer of Hebrews summarizes their lives with a crazy statement. This is what he says in Hebrews 11.38. These were people of whom the world was not worthy. After reading this statement, I conclude... Well, neither am I then. These saints did crazy things for God. They trusted Him to do daring, ridiculous, impossible tasks. My life will never compare with some of these heroes, right? But is this a conclusion that the writer of Hebrews is trying to get us to? You're not as good as Abraham. Is that what it is? I don't think so. Not at all. And if that's what we come to, man, I just will never be like Abraham. I'll never be like David. I'll never be like Moses. We're missing it. And this is an insight. One of my professors, Matt Moore, really pressed into me last year, which I just really love. But if we were going to take an honest look at their lives, we would soon realize that they were ordinary people, some of them fairly non-extravagant, to say it lightly. In fact, most of them made some pretty major errors. Abraham uh, laughed at God and he lied a couple times on occasions that his wife was his sister. Awkward. Moses was, mur was a murderer and then doubted God. Rahab was a prostitute. David was an adulterer and a murderer. Not to mention Samson, who seemed to be completely 
of failure. I don't know if you've ever read about Samson's life. Sam, uh, man, that dude. It's just like, what are you doing? But still, he's mentioned in the Hall of Faith. It appears as if those, these examples of faith were not much different than ours. These people were not perfect at all. They messed up and at times walked away from God. Therefore, what makes their life worth telling? Why does the author bring all of them together in this chapter to tell about their great faith? Could it be that the writer of Hebrews was not intending to highlight people's faith, but God's faithfulness? That every single time we look at that chapter, we realize, man, these people were just like I was. I've never said that my wife is my sister. Right? And then I look at Abraham and I'm like, how could you bring your son up a mountain to kill him? Out of obedience to God. Because Abraham understood the faithfulness of the Father that I don't. So then the question should never be for us, man, what would it be like to have the faith like Abraham? It should be this, man, what would it be like to understand God's faithfulness like Abraham does? Does that make sense? That we would mature in our thinking, in our reality of who God is. Faith is not the end goal. It's not the amazing thing. The amazing thing is the one who is faithful. To always come through. That chapter of Hebrews lines out God's redemptive history, Abraham, all the way up through. And it it climaxes to a point where you failed over and over and over. But for my name's sake, because I am faithful, because I will redeem a people. Because I will bring all the nations together that they might come back into life through me. I will be faithful to you. Even though you are broken. And I will make... An assurance through time that when my people look at me, they'll see a faithful streak all the way back to the beginning. So our faith is not the amazing thing, church, and it never should be. And that's what Paul is talking about when he's saying, grow up in the maturity of God. Because we were never meant to be Christians and then just live this mundane life trying to work our way through all of our crap. That wasn't Christianity. We were meant to come into relationship with Christ through the Holy Spirit and the Spirit would reveal the mind of God to us that when we walk through this world no matter the persecution we face or if the world tells us that we're fools we say my faith isn't predicated on what you see it's predicated on the faithfulness of my King that's what we need to make the more we grow up Out of our childish ways, the more we will live like children of our King. You know, there's something that just hit me so hard this week when I was praying. Why is it so important we have faith? Why is it so important that we live as children of God? Why? Why is it so important that we stay in connection with the Father? I mean... Can we honestly say we know why? On a daily basis, why do we die to self and come to Christ? And there was just... I was reading the Tim Keller quote this week. And I had no idea what the quote said. And I didn't even finish it. 
but I got to these three words, and it rocked my world. I've heard them before, but it spoke to my spirit. You know what I mean? It's just like it became alive to me, and he said this, God is life. We don't come to Jesus because he's going to make our life better, because he's going to give you gifts, because he's going to make things, you know, just all happy so that you have your little family and your job and you got a lot of money and all these things. No, no, we come to Jesus for life. God is life. It says in Colossians 3, this is in your outline. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above when, where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. And there were, as soon as I read that quote, man, it just hit me so hard and God put this scripture verse into my head so i just want to share it with you this morning because we have to understand our need for god john 10 10 it says the thief has come to steal kill and destroy but christ has come that you might have life and have it abundantly because a good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep and when i heard that statement god is life this week this is what i heard god tell me eric The enemy wants to kill you. The enemy wants to destroy your life, seniors. He wants you to die. But let me tell you good news. Christ has come so that you can have him and have him abundantly. Because he is the good shepherd And a good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He has come to give you him. Because he is life. And man, I've just, I've just been thinking about this. It's like how many of us live in this world. This world wants to destroy this childlike faith. It wants to destroy this childlike mentality that says we need God. And it wants to make ourselves God. Just like I talked about two weeks ago or three weeks ago. The Tower of Babel. Let us make a name for ourselves. That is the world's objective. And so through time we see men trying to raise themselves up into gods. From serious control like pharaohs. All the way to the daily person today that says like I don't need God. I can do it on my own. And this is something I was talking to my wife Lauren about two days ago. I said man you know what's amazing about this? Is that the only person who had the full control, the full right and power to be fully man and fully God, what did he do with it? Did he raise up an empire and call legions of angels to come down to lift him to greatness? No. He was born among a trough. He hung out with thieves and fishermen. He was spit on. He was ridiculed. He was stripped naked and he was nailed to a cross and buried in the grave. Oh my goodness. Jesus has come to give us Him. And the cost He paid for that is everything. And how dare we look at that and say, I got it. I don't need you. How dare we say, Lord, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to deal with you here, but I got this over here. So just tag me in when you want me to come back. 
That's not how Christianity works. Christ said, no, no, you live as a child because you need me. And the greatest picture of you needing me is the fact that I would forego the worship of angels in heaven in eternity to be made a man and be buried in the dirt so that I could overcome it so that you could realize your need for me. Come to me. You are weary. You are broken without me. Because everything outside of Christ is death. Everything from your joy to your emotional fulfillments to your careers that you think you have so much bliss in. Everything will lead you to death if you do not have Christ. If He is not the thing you're dependent upon, it will lead you to death. That's a serious thing. When I look at these people, man, when I look in Hebrews 11, I look at these, these men of faith and these women of faith. Faith is costly. Living like a child is costly. Why? Because it means you have to lay down yourself. It means you have to lay, I have to lay down Eric. And let me be honest with you guys, just between me and you, keep it a secret. Um, there are some times where this Christian walk for me, I can think back to the days when my Christianity was just sort of lukewarm and I was a Christian, but, you know, I just sort of kept that in the bag because I just wanted to assimilate with the world and it made things easier, right? It's easy to fit in. This Christian walk is exhausting to me sometimes because the reality is the more that I've learned about God, the more that I know how much I need Him. It's not like I wake up and I'm like, I got this in the bank, let's do this. I was on my face this week for this sermon because I don't have anything. I have nothing outside the wisdom of God. Outside of His Spirit alive in me. And to wake up every single day and to realize there is an enemy that wants to destroy me. And to live in the reality of not, not just get plugged back into the matrix. But to live in the reality that my flesh is trying to draw me away from the satisfaction, the reality, and the truth of God. And I have been called... To, to respond by saying, no, no, I will believe in the Father. And the world says, you're a fool. And I say, that's fine. You know, in 1 Corinthians 1, it says that the cross is foolishness to the world. But to those who are saved, it is salvation. So let me tell you something, seniors. You're going to be called a fool the rest of your life if you believe in Christ. But Christ chose the foolishness to redeem the world. Here's why it's foolish. Because if the whole point of the world is to become a God, to make our name great, then a God coming from heaven who has all authority and all power as God to lower himself to the dirt is the stupidest thing in all of eternity from a worldly perspective. So if we can rationalize the cross, we disprove Jesus. But if we can live in the reality that, no, no, it is foolish. It doesn't make any sense. Why would God give His life for me? But then we can grow up in the wisdom of the Word and say, but it is truth. And it blows my mind and like a child I will receive a gift that I did not deserve forever in gladness every day because it's reality. That no matter what comes your way, no matter if the world says you're foolish or you're stupid or you're ignorant or you need to grow up from this thinking that you need, you depend on something, it doesn't matter. Because the king has overcome this world. 
The reality of the kingdom is above this world. And God is alive and real. You know, in Matthew 16, Jesus said, If anyone would come to me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life and lose it, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? And I was talking to Floyd last night. And just that reality of, you know, faith is costly. Lowering yourself, humbling yourself, not exalting yourself in this world is costly. It costs us our pride. It costs, it costs us a lot of things that the world says is important. But what's the cost if we don't? Because the cost of not depending on God and coming to the source of life, what's the cost? It's death. In Romans 8, this is the first thing in your outline. It says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of salvation or fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. And if heirs of God, then fellow heirs with Christ. Provide we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Everybody loves this verse except for after that comma right there. The suffering part kind of sucks to read. Um, but let me talk about this for a second. Just for your own like personal inventory. It says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Are you being led by God? Are you being obedient to the Father? Are you coming into dependence to the Father? Like an infant comes to its mother? Or do you think you have it together? Because that is dangerous. The evidence, it says, in which we are sons of God is that we are led by the Spirit. Let that wake you up and me up and constantly remind us where our source of life comes from. But here's the beauty. The Spirit Himself witnesses to our spirit that we're children of God. We are children of God. No matter what the world says to you, the Spirit of the living God will breathe into you if you pursue Him, if you seek Him, if you follow after Him, and He will say, remember, child, you are of the King. You are of the King. And this world will pass away, and everything will pass away, but let me tell you something, child. Because you're a child of the King, you're an heir to the King. You're an heir. Meaning that all the promises, all the way back to Abraham, are yours. You own them. They're yours. We have no stake in this game, on this earth. Because everything on this earth will fade away. But the promises and the heir of the kingdom, man, it says in 1 Peter, Blessed be to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the re resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It is eternal. This world cannot touch the blessings of God. It cannot corrupt the blessings and the provision of the Father. So no matter what the world says to you, you're a fool. It's just like, okay, you live within the confines of this broken world that's going to burn. And I'm just going to wait 
for the inheritance of eternity. Which one of those has more weight? I'm not trying to be rude. I'm just saying we need to grow up into maturity. This is not a game. Let me continue this verse. I didn't finish it. To an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power is being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Man, what God has to offer us is His children. As we come to Him in dependence, in complete assurance of Him because we've grown in spiritual maturity, that life, you can't touch that life. Submitting to God and doing His will, truly, once we understand who He is and walking in relationship is where we find life. That is life. Because Christ is life. If we are fully reliant on God and submitting to His will, how can we have a fuller life? In biblical or eternal perspective, it doesn't exist. The enemy will consistently try to tear us back to this world that says, no, no, no. you need to be your own. You need, to, you need to walk away from that dependence of God. You don't need God, you need yourself. But the Spirit of God intercedes with our spirit and says, I'm calling you, child, come to me, child. Come to me, all who are weary and broken, and I will give you rest. And that is God's call for us. If you don't have that desire or you're like, man, I want that. I want to know what it means to be led by God. I want to know what it means to walk in obedience. Paul says, put away childish things and come to knowledge of the king. The word is truth. Testimonies of people around us are truth. This community of believers, like it says in the end of Hebrews 10, that we would not uh, stop meeting together so that we would have the edification of one another living amongst us. We need this. And at this child, or at this child, at red child, at this time, I want to invite all of our youth leaders and all of our seniors to come up on the stage. Let's just do this. Just come right up here. Man, I love these guys. We are so blessed to have the team of leadership we do in Young and Company. Give it up for them. Huh? I don't know. You guys, you can come up here. You're going to make the students be up here? <laughs> yeah. Some of our students couldn't make it today. I think we have eight graduating. And, man, it's good stuff. This is Callie. Everybody give it up for Callie. Is Jordan. This is Harrison. And this is Cody. Mm-hmm. We love you guys so much. Know that. Wherever you go in this world, you have people that are praying and believing for you. Great things because our God is great. Thank you.
And uh, man, we are so blessed to have these incredible believers growing up in the truth of the word. This is the future of God's kingdom, and it's beautiful. And if you guys want to just stand with us, we're going to pray for these students really quick. I'm just going to lead us off. If you guys want to put your grubby hands all over us, This is Rory and Gideon. They're leaders in our youth group too. And Levi. Father, we just thank you for what you're doing in this church. Lord, we thank you for this generation that's being risen up to be your children. God, that they would live in the realities of who you are, God, and grow in the wisdom of your truth. Lord, we just thank you for the immense blessing it is to stand with them and call them a family. Lord, that they uh, would share their lives with us and we would get to share our lives with them. Lord, I pray as a body, not only as youth leaders, but as a whole entire body of believers, Lord, that we would stand with these students who are graduating, that we would speak life into these students, that we would bring the reality of the kingdom into their lives, that when they get stuck into the lives of the world and they just get falling down or they're just having a bad day, Lord, that you would use us to help lift them up and speak life and truth. Lord, we thank you for each one of them. They have such incredible personal gifts and talents and visions and dreams that you have embedded into them for your purpose and your glory. And we pray that you would do greater things than we could ever imagine in their lives. God, we thank you so much for who they are. We thank you so much for who you're calling them to be. Lord, we pray that you would just continue to just, just pave the way for them. Wherever schools they're going to, whatever things they're going to learn, that you would guard their hearts, that you would guard their minds, and that you would speak truth into who they are, that your spirit would be alive in them, and they would just feel your presence move them. We thank you for everything in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Love you guys. Right after the service, we're going to be having a just a thank you or a, just a senior lunch on the patio. If you know any of the seniors and you want to come give them a hug, congratulate them for making it through high school. We'll be out there. And I just noticed that my sister Ashley didn't come up on stage, but she's graduating too. <laughs> All right, let's sing this song. We're the children of God, church, and that's an awesome thing. Let us grow up in the maturity of the word and live boldly in the faith of our King. Amen.
Amen.